From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. The COVID-19 landscape continues to evolve and change, and so does the status of vaccination. It's frankly a lot to keep track of, so I wanted to bring on two vaccine experts, Pam Dibak and Gina Lore, to talk about some of the puzzle pieces that we are still trying to work on and some of the questions that are still currently unanswered. Just so you know, we recorded this episode on September 16th, and over the weekend, we got two important updates on vaccination in the U.S., which just proves that there is never a slow news cycle in healthcare. So you're going to hear me jumping into the conversation with Pam and Gina with those updates. All right, let's get into it. Hey, Gina. Hey, Pam. Morning, Ray. Hi, Ray. Have either of you ever been on a podcast before, or will this be your first time? I am a podcast newbie, but podcasts are like the primary way I get new interesting information, so I'm super excited. I mean, same. That should be obvious, but 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 same. What about you, Pam? It is my first time, but I feel like I'm talking about vaccines or COVID 24-7, so excited to bring the conversation out. That's exactly what I was going to say, is that you two, while you are new to Radio Advisory, have been in the background for a while, helping us make sure we're staying on top of all things COVID-19 and all things vaccination. So I'm excited to, to finally bring your voices to the podcast. If I'm honest, I feel like we're reaching a kind of new stage of maybe undefined territory with vaccines, or at least a moment where, once again, we have open questions that we are trying to answer. But of course, as always, right, this is advisory board. I'm hoping that we can provide some takeaways, some action steps to our listeners. I want to start big picture. What is the biggest thing that has changed since we last spoke about vaccines on this podcast? I think the biggest thing is that we have mandates now. For a while, I know companies, employers were really acting on their own. But with President Biden's announcement two weeks ago, I think this really creates a turning point for where we are and how we might be able to increase vaccinations in the future. Yeah, I I mean, I think not only hitting on all the federal workforce, but looking at healthcare settings, looking at large employers, like that very much could be a game changer and needs to change the way we're, we're talking about vaccines. And this is something that I think gives the three of us and a lot of folks in healthcare some hope that we are closing the gap for the unvaccinated. But I know that's not been everyone's reaction. What kinds of reactions are you tracking in the healthcare space? Personally, I'm hearing from healthcare leaders who are worried about staffing and trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to keep employees. They're worried that when the mandates go into effect, they're going to lose, especially those staff at lower education levels, like technicians, that that's going to mm-hmm. put a big gap in the hospital workforce. And, and they're trying to figure out next steps there. So they're they're kind of concerned, although I think there's others who are really happy that they have cover now, that they're not going to be competing with the hospital down the street for that labor force. If if one hospital says we do have a mandate and another says we don't. And so they have been worried about an exodus there and it does kind of put everyone on equal playing fields. And didn't I actually even see that the American Hospital Association put out a similar warning, right? It's not just 
small hospitals in upstate New York that have to close down their maternity ward. Didn't I see the AHA say something about this as well? I think the American Hospital Association even said that a federal mandate might leave hospitals even more short-staffed. But on the other hand, there are countless doctors, experts that I'm tracking that are really applauding the mandate, not just for what it means for COVID safety, but also for overall staff engagement. And I actually really appreciate this pushback because I don't think we want to get down the path of listening to the most vocal group of people in the room who are the naysayers. At the same time, I don't want to discount the very real staffing problem that so many hospitals have and that the reality that some might have to come to a decision of resisting the mandate for a little bit, right? Because it won't even go into effect until mid-October. Is that correct? That's what I've seen, kind of the speculation. Right. And so if folks are kind of hmm, dragging their feet, maybe wanting to push back a little bit, maybe they're doing that because of impossible trade-offs they have to make about keeping beds, keeping their labor and delivery board open, et cetera. But at the same time, we have to remember that there is still a world in which healthcare leaders, hospital leaders specifically, can actually use their focus on safety to say, we care about our employees, come work with us, because we actually do want to mandate vaccines. And I have to believe that will work for some people. And Ray, I I think there's another nuance in the safety conversation. Our workforce experts who I have been checking in with say that Amidst the the shortages, amidst the the wrestling that they're having right now, the best thing to message to your employees is we care about you. But for some, that comes in the message of we're all going to be vaccinated so you can feel like this is a safe place to work. And for others, that needs to be a more nuanced message to help them Hmm. feel like the health system cares about them as they're working through their own vaccine questions. So maybe the takeaway there is to then make sure you're actually doing pulse surveys and understanding how your employees actually feel, both about mandates and maybe vaccination in general, but also about the state of the pandemic, what their staffing ratios are, what their capacity is like, and really understand at a specific and deep level how all of these things are affecting your own employees. Any and all data is helpful for these to to understand the big picture, But then when it comes down to actually shifting people closer to comfort with the vaccine, it may even go below the pulse survey level to the individual level Hmm. and sort of setting the tone from the top that it's okay to have these conversations, it's okay to have questions, and that from the top all the way down to the frontline managers, they should be engaging in, in conversations about vaccine, about hesitancy, about safety, about how the health system cares, how, how staff in the health system care for each other. We're talking about mandates, and I'm not sure that we could have had as in-depth of a conversation about this a few weeks ago or a few months ago. I think one of the reasons why we can have this in-depth conversation about mandates is because we now have a fully approved Pfizer vaccine. Is that one of the reasons why folks like the Biden administration, you know, big corporations, feel like they have the armor to say, we're mandating this? I believe so. Just when you look at the timing of everything with the recent FDA full approval, it it makes sense. I think we're also at an interesting point in the pandemic where, you know, the FDA approved the vaccine. We're seeing cases rise and the timing of it all makes sense. 
And there are more approvals that we are waiting for and watching for. And that's a big open question. What are you seeing in terms of full authorization for the Moderna or the J&J vaccine? We know that Moderna submitted for full approval in August. J&J has not submitted yet, but we expect they are going to apply later this year. But we know the process can take months, so we'll just have to keep watching. So maybe it's not right around the corner, but but soon? Hopefully soon? I hope so. Pam, what do we know about the state of approval for booster shots for all three? So we know that Pfizer and Moderna have both submitted documents to the FDA to ask for authorization for the boosters. At the time that we are recording this podcast, the FDA has yet to meet to evaluate the data and come to a recommendation about the authorization of boosters. I know know a lot can change between now and then, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. But based on some of the early documents that we've seen, it's unclear whether experts are actually in favor or not of the boosters. Oh, really? Why is that? So on the one hand, data from Pfizer has shown that efficacy wanes over time. And I think that's not because of Delta explicitly, just because of the prolonged period that we've had since first rollout. But it sounds like the FDA experts are really taking a kind of cautious or neutral stance. So they know that on the one hand, the two doses are effective, especially when you're looking at severe impact on hospitalizations. But some also think the impact of boosters might be limited. So we'll see what happens in the next few days. But I think we're at a really interesting point in terms of what happens with boosters. First quick update here. On Friday, September 17th, a panel of experts in FDA's advisory committee recommended offering Pfizer booster shots for people 65 and older, plus high-risk individuals over the age of 16. But this was a result of a lot of debate. In fact, experts voted not to recommend boosters for all eligible Americans, citing a lack of data to know for sure whether boosters were necessary in other groups. Now, this decision isn't binding, but usually the FDA follows suit. So we're going to be watching for the official FDA decision and CDC guidance on rollout. But of course, this raises a whole bunch of new questions for Pam and for me about the future of boosters. So check out a link in the show notes for our latest post on the status of all things vaccines. And how does that compare with what we're seeing with other countries? I'm thinking about Israel specifically. I think that they're preparing for a possible fourth dose. What I'm hearing is just the the tension between are we trying to protect our people from sort of any symptoms, any disease versus... I would say the bigger global question about, Mm. you know, is it actually in all of our best interests for more people around the world to get vaccinated so that you don't have, I mean, little, little COVID variant factories all around the world amongst the unvaccinated population. I mean, I I think getting up to speed on boosters for me has felt like a full-blown biology course. It's been really (laughs) fascinating to learn about the T cells and the B cells and and how the vaccines can sort of prime our deeper immune system. But on the timing of doses, to your question, Ray, I recently heard Dr. Fauci talking about this and said, you know, it may be that the COVID vaccine sequence ultimately ends up kind of like what we have 
have for hepatitis B, where the mm. full course of the vaccine is a three-shot series over six months, and that you really need that to activate that full and enduring immunity. And so it's not that this is a booster shot and you're, we're going to need booster shots every six to eight to 12 months across the future. It's not like we're going to need an annual COVID shot like we have an annual flu shot. It may be that the full immunity is really garnered through that three-shot series, which you know I think about my, my son and his vaccines as a kid. Many of those vaccines are a, like a three, four, five-shot series. And so it's not unheard of that you just need kind of those additional boosters to get to enduring immunity, which then persists. And you're right that this is not unheard of. There are, there are plenty of other clinical examples in which this kind of, of sequence makes sense. But, but let me reveal my own, my own kind of fear here. And that's that there are a lot of vaccine resistors still left and i get afraid that as we kind of shift the conversation around boosters and around timing and around approvals which we still need to come back to that that might fuel unintentionally the quote unquote evidence for vaccine resistors to say see they don't actually know what they're talking about is that a concern that you have too i definitely have that concern i think that's something that we've seen throughout the entire pandemic which is as new evidence emerges or new approvals are happening it does create confusion but i think the point that i personally want to emphasize is that it's okay for our knowledge to keep changing as new evidence emerges mm -hmm. it means that we are developing a greater understanding of how the vaccines work and for who and at what time and keeping that in mind that'll just help us fight the pandemic better in the future and there's that clinical open question, right, that we are talking about right now of what is actually the best timing. But there's also – maybe it's an ethical open question, which you brought up earlier, Gina, which is should we be focused on protecting our own people and from anything? Is it from symptoms? Is it from severe disease? Or should we be trying to vaccinate the globe, right? If I think about timing of doses, even in the two-dose options, right, there were other countries who several months ago said, we're actually going to prioritize getting as many people one dose rather than making sure that everybody gets their second dose three or four weeks apart, which is kind of a second question that we need to answer for ourselves as a country and, and as a medical community. I, I'll be really excited and interested to see what comes out like from from Britain. Are they tracking? Are they, are they using that expanded time frame as a, another sort of, of trial and tracking the outcomes there? We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. We know that representation in healthcare is crucial to improve care outcomes, decision-making, business performance, community trust, and to ensure all employees can thrive. Advisory Board, in partnership with Optum, invites you to share innovative strategies you've used to successfully increase the diversity of your workforce to better reflect your community's demographic makeup in clinical and leadership roles. This November, we're holding an innovation showcase on strategies to advance diversity. 
the organization with the winning idea will receive $10,000 they can use to further invest in their DEI work. Plus, all finalists will be profiled in upcoming advisory board research. To enter the showcase, go to advisory.com slash DEI showcase or visit the link in the show notes. All submissions must be in before October 1st. Once again, to enter the showcase, go to advisory.com slash DEI showcase or visit the link in the show notes. I want to get back to this question around approvals because we know that we're still waiting on full approval for Moderna and J&J open question about the boosters. But what about the age limits? I think a lot of folks, especially parents, are eagerly awaiting you know, younger people to be approved to get this vaccine. What are we what timeline are we seeing there? So we know that Pfizer is on track in the coming weeks, they said, to get approval for their vaccine for five to eleven year olds. And I think Oh, in a few weeks. Yeah. And I think Moderna is expecting to have that data by the year's end. Last quick update here. Just yesterday on September 20th, Pfizer released new data around kids ages 5 to 11. They showed that lower doses of COVID-19 vaccines are safe and shows robust antibody responses. Pfizer is going to include this data in a near-term submission for emergency use authorization. They're going to keep collecting data to file for full approval, but regulators are hopeful that the approval will come potentially by Halloween. What about even younger kids? I know that both companies are testing their vaccines down to, I think, six months, but those results will probably come a bit later. So no timeline there? Not at the moment. I've heard, yeah, I've heard end of year tossed around, but I'm never quite sure if that's real numbers, real dates, or if that is sort of <laughs> to, to appease parents. I also heard beginning of the school year at some point in that's the past right, year. Of course. Do you know um, how old I, are your kids? Are they excited about getting vaccinated? Do they know that this is an option? I have a seven-year-old, and he – I remember I, – I didn't realize how much he was processing about the pandemic and vaccines until Pfizer got the original emergency use authorization back in December, and he had a full-blown party in the kitchen. He was like, oh, <laughs> this is – we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. And I was like, okay, he's he's tracking, and he sort of understands what's going on here. I think it's really interesting with the pediatric vaccines is just figuring out how to get the dose right, like hearing that Pfizer was testing out three Mm. potential dosage levels. So not timing the actual dosage of the material. How much do you pull up into the syringe uh, and put into a child and what's effective? I think the broader conversation that we're having about timing, about boosters, about, you know, the stress of what it means to to be a parent and have kids in, in school, it speaks to the fact that some folks in America are maybe a bit desperate to boost their immunity. Desperate might be a, uh, <laughs> a hyperbolic term, but I'm wondering if people are going to start pushing to mix and match vaccine types. Maybe they are you know, their perception of the vaccine that they got in April or May or June isn't good enough and they're going to be seeking out a different one. Do we know if it's okay for that kind of mixing and matching? Well, I'm definitely not here to provide any clinical advice, but based on the data that I've seen, 
it seems that there is no harm in mixing and matching. I know that the city of San Francisco began offering mixing and matching about a month or a month and a half ago. I've seen data from researchers in the UK that said that people who mix and match doses only have slightly more severe side effects. But I think there's been conflicting information right now about whether we should move forward with mixing and matching and continuing to collect real world data and real world evidence on it will be really important. Yeah. To me, this just brings up a whole host of downstream consequences, right? Months ago, we did an episode and, and, and wrote a blog post about this concept of vaccine hunters, people who were seeking out and kind of doing everything they could to get their hands on a vaccine. And I almost wonder if we are somewhat back to that place. It's just that now folks are hunting down that booster shot or hunting down a different dose than what they had the first time. How does that impact our ability to measure and even just understand vaccination rate here in the U.S.? I mean, it certainly is is a confounding factor. I, I think it will make measuring harder. You know, we ha- we haven't had data, perfect data, from the beginning. Uh, I think the vaccines are being tracked on a state level, but not necessarily on a national level. And so, you can certainly see a scenario in which people vaccine seeking for boosters could you know, mess with the data a little bit. Like, do we really know what we're going toward here? Are we are we moving toward a certain threshold, and do we trust the numbers to tell us when we've hit that threshold? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's really realistic. Especially with all of the different access points to get a vaccine now. It's not just hospitals, mass vaccination sites, and CVS. I mean, you can get a vaccine at an airport or at a baseball game. My fear is that it really messes up our ability to track vaccination rate, which will impact our ability to assess the level of risk that we have right now or, you know, six months from now when it comes to this virus. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's interesting that it feels like it comes back down to the same kind of communication challenge as we see with even people who are vaccine resistant, but this time it's on the other end of the spectrum. Vaccine resistant, like all of the changing data makes them want to stay away or some people want to stay away from the vaccine. Other people, all of the changing data makes them want to go out and just get all the vaccines. And at the end of the day, oh, it, yeah, it you're right. Makes you're right. the challenge harder. Yeah. The 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 messiness of the data both pushes people towards inoculation and away from it. What a fascinating and completely unhelpful insight. <laughs> Anybody out there in healthcare communication? Have a a good answers here. (laughs) Well, maybe this is this comes back to Pam's point about capturing real world evidence that it's not just about the exact dosage or the exact timing that we're finding out in clinical trials, but really understanding how do these things work in the real world. Like I said, the data gets really, really messy, but but what is the role of healthcare organizations, of governments, manufacturers? What's the role of the industry in capturing this real world evidence so that we can actually make informed decisions? I think there needs to be a little bit more coordination than exists today, at least in the U.S. We need to be able to understand how vaccines are working in different subpopulations or in different communities. And right now we're turning to a lot of great data coming out of Israel, for example. But I think if we're better able to collect it, analyze it here, that might help with future decision making. Can I ask you a philosophical question? With all the moving parts about dosing and boosters, do we need to actually change our definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated? 
That's something I've been grappling with too, especially when you look at places that are now requiring proof of vaccination, or we Mm -hmm. all have the apps downloaded on our phone with our kind of vaccine cards. What happens next? I'm really not sure, but I think it's something that we as a healthcare industry need to start grappling with. When it comes to data collection, I'll tell you my, my own doctor, right? Every time I go in, I have to check the same information about COVID-19 exposure and vaccination status. And just the other day, I, I pulled up my my portal and I literally went, whoa, because they asked about if I'd had a third dose and they asked about the timing, how if I was under eight months or over eight months from my second dose. So maybe that shows that we're moving at least better in the data collection uh, space. And and maybe ultimately it will change how we think about our own status as vaccinated people. But I, I think that we need to remember that this is something that will probably be in flux for years now as Absolutely. well. I mean, I think about the vaccines that I probably received as a small child and how those vaccine regimens have changed over time over the last decades and that probably they're going to be fine tuning this for years to come even even though they have you know Pfizer has a full approval already and to Pam's point how do we make sure that we're communicating that that is normal and okay Well, we've been talking about a lot of these open questions. We talked about changes to vaccine mandates, the various changes to approvals, mixing and matching doses, boosters, the timing of it all, what it means for us in the U.S. versus the globe. There are a lot of open questions, and I also believe that we've only begun to scratch the surface. What else are you watching for that we haven't talked about today? Pam, let's start with you. So I think there's two main things that I'm watching kind of on the topic of real world evidence and understanding how these vaccines work in the real world. I think there is a really big opportunity to look at the data we have to see how certain vaccines work better for subgroups. So I know that Mm -hmm. we're thinking a lot about age. There's a lot of data coming out that looks at how vaccines work in 50 to 59 versus 60 to 69, for example. But I think we can also get at other characteristics like your background or your race or your ethnicity or different Mm. comorbidities that you might have. And as we start to have these vaccines nearing full approval, I think that data will be really helpful for kind of allocation efforts. Gina, what about you? I think there's still a lot of factors outside of vaccines that could really change the shape of the pandemic, whether it is new variants, whether it is treatments that are being tested out that may come online and prove effective. So, you know, while we thought, you know, at the beginning of the summer that the pandemic was winding down, Delta showed us that that was not the case. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't quite know what twists and turns are coming up next either. Well, given all of these open questions, I still want to make sure that we are giving our audience an action item. What is the one thing that you want our listeners to focus on right now? I mean, for me, as I've been thinking about these things, one of the kind of connection points that I have been making as we talk about healthcare communication, as we talk about those who are vaccine hesitant, is that there is, you know, at, at the core of a lot of it is a distrust of conventional medicine. And Mm -hmm. we see overlap between the communities, some communities that are vaccine hesitant and those that may also have, say, later diagnosis of critical illnesses like cancer. And, 
you know, this may relate to access to care, but it might also stem from a distrust of conventional medicine and healthcare providers. And so how are we as you know, healthcare leaders facilitating a broader conversation than just take the shot. Um, but we care about mm-hmm. you. We want you to be healthy and try to re-engage folks in those broader healthcare conversations. Gina, I completely agree and would echo what you said, but I think there is a really important role that not just healthcare leaders need to play in this communication and building trust, but any community leader. We've spoken with a lot of leading programs that are really increasing equitable access to vaccines and they you know, they prioritize, have your local leaders lead conversations about the vaccine, really get into into your community, have those one-on-one conversations. And I think that could really move the needle. Well, Pam, Gina, thanks so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Ray. For me, the most important thing to remember is that everyone in the healthcare space needs to balance the necessary flexibility that comes with a quickly changing environment. But at the same time, make sure you're doubling down on what you know works. Do not let up on your communication strategy, on a single source of truth for your clinicians and your physicians to share with the broader population. We have to make sure we're being flexible and we're being resilient if we're going to get through this. And remember, as always, we're here to help. I want to know when I can get my booster. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't you say you were going to try to get yourself a a booster? Yeah, I went to get my flu shot and they asked me if I was vaccinated against COVID. And I said, yep. And if you want to give me a third dose, I'm right here rolling up my sleeves. And I don't I don't think they appreciated the joke. (laughs) 